Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Aaron and Trishal discuss all the different types of taxes in the United States and their impact on income inequality. They discuss regressive consumption taxes, progressive income taxes, and how taxes are lower for businesses and the wealthy. They also examine the difference between marginal tax rates and effective tax rates. Do you know all the ways that corporations and their owners avoid paying taxes? Maybe our society has collectively decided that this is acceptable. Or perhaps it's the maximum marginal brackets on corporations and individuals that affect public perception, when it is, in fact, our tax system that hinders income earners while helping the wealthy. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trishal Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here today, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. In the past, we've talked about taxes from the perspective of the advice that we give to our clients. We look at their individual situation. We try to help them understand different strategies that they can use to reduce their tax burden, maybe in a, any given year, but more likely over their lifetime by taking advantage of the different taxes that may or may not apply to them. Today, we're gonna to try and discuss the overall tax system and how that impacts a wide range of people, mostly offering our opinions on how this impacts society and how this contributes to income inequality and what the ramifications might might look like moving forward. So, Trisha, to start us off kind of a really high level, when you think about the tax system in the United States, what are some of your high-level thoughts that you think about? In my mind, it just seems like at a high level, it's really complicated. It's hard to kind of wrap your head around all the different ways that the government has figured out how to tax us. And it kind of begins with money that's earned that has a whole different set of rules. And then there's all these deductions you can have with earned income. And then there's taxes on investments. And there's a whole set of rules there. If you're a business, there's a whole set of rules there and how those end up being taxed. And then of course, if you're a consumer and you try to spend some money, there's a whole set of rules there. And that's at the federal level. Then at a state level, there's a whole different set of taxes there that might apply. And in some places, your city or municipality may charge another set of taxes. So to begin, it just seems like there's a lot of complexity going on. And it's a pretty big and bureaucratic system, frankly. Okay. So when you're thinking about some of those different systems, either how they're interrelated or how they're specifically separate. When we talk about, the, you said individual versus business versus the consumer, the, the federal estate, do, do you have some examples that we can try to establish at the beginning that we might refer back to over time? I know we've talked about in the past, there's 
ordinary income taxes. So you pay it based on your income. This is kind of where retirement accounts come into play. A lot of the benefits from retirement accounts affect ordinary income taxes. We've talked about capital gains taxes and dividends as they affect non-qualified accounts or, or taxable investment accounts. I don't think we really talked about the consumer taxes, but is there any examples that you want to use there that might apply so that we have, a, have kind of our frame of reference for the rest of our conversation? Yeah, so on the consumer end, we, we all know there's the sales taxes and those typically apply at the state level or your municipality as well. And these are known as a consumption type of tax, meaning the more you consume, the more you're gonna pay for these types of taxes. Now, typically for a given state or a municipality, they're not gonna tax you on basic goods like bread and butter and milk and things like that, but they will tax you on most other types of goods. There are some states that don't tax on clothing, so that's also something to think about. But typically these consumption type of state taxes are levied against items that you just may end up buying for entertainment or pleasure or things like that. So th these are basically items that you buy. Now, one caveat to that that we might have noticed is that when you buy things over the internet and it's from a different state, you don't actually pay those taxes up front. You're supposed to collect those receipts and um, spend a, maybe a two or three working days figuring out all your taxes <laughs> from all these different states in terms of what you spend and, and pay that. But, but that, that's you know, just more of the bureaucracy that I mentioned. Oh, so but, is that why now as a resident of California, Amazon knows that I'm a resident of California because they keep shipping things here. That's why they're charging me the state taxes now. Well, part of that is also because Amazon likely has a distribution center in California, meaning that they've set up distribution centers all across the country. So they're, they're technically operating in California mm -hmm. as well. Whereas I before see. it was more centralized or more shipped across state lines. Okay. Then also with consumption, there are taxes on specific items for example, on tobacco or alcohol or gambling. These are known as sin taxes. So these are taxes designed to collect revenue to offset social externalities that may come up that may cause trouble because of these particular items. For example, alcohol and cigarettes may provide burden on the healthcare system. So the, the government has decided to tax these at a higher rate and collect revenue separately beyond a sales tax. So that, that's something to think about. Now, um, one thing for that, when I think of the, the so-called sin taxes, I'm curious how much this plays in to both our conversation, also policymakers thought process. I had envisioned these as government organizations trying to incentivize morality and specifically kind of the things that we have pretty good evidence are bad for you they increase the taxes on these because we actually do see effective correlations that as the taxes on these things increase the consumption does go down and it is not perfect and it's not going across everyone but they are able to curb 
use, and it's hard to tell if it's just because of the taxes, but they're able to curb use by increasing the taxes on some of these items. We'll see if that comes up later, but I'm curious if you had any initial thoughts on the morality of sin taxes. Well, there's two ways to think about it. One is the morality standpoint in terms of what is we in the society think is sensible, but also there's an economic standpoint to view it. Whereas, as I mentioned, just putting morality aside, individuals that, for example, smoke are likely to require more healthcare services. They're likely to put a greater strain on the overall healthcare expenditure, especially if they're relying on government subsidized healthcare. So I think that that's part of the concern. Now, I've, I've also heard some, some criticisms of this type of tax from a few perspectives. One is, yeah, should the government be imposing their morality on citizens? But the other way to think about it is maybe instead of thinking about it from a morality standpoint, is it sensible for the government to put this tax into place with the notion that you're actually helping out the overall society by increasing the opportunity for people to move away from these items or choose alternatives so that there could be an overall benefit by providing this tax. However, when I've actually looked into some of this research, I've heard mixed reviews. For example, there's been some criticism that when the government does collect these types of revenues that they weren't actually spending the money in the right place, meaning they weren't trying to improve education or increase healthy options. They were actually using it for just completely different reasons, mainly to fill budget holes and things like that. Yeah. So that, that's part of the concern, meaning if the government's getting this revenue, are they really incentivized for people to lessen their use of these items if they're going to get <laughs> less money? <laughs> so that there's a concern there. There's a moral hazard there on the behalf of the government. The other thing I've heard as far as criticism is that with these types of taxes, they tend to be regressive in nature. So a little bit of terminology with taxes is Typically, when we think of taxes, we think of if somebody has a larger income, we kind of feel that it might make sense for them to pay a larger dollar amount in terms of taxes, or even a larger percentage of their income should go towards taxes because they have more income to support themselves. So this That's, is just normal, ordinary income tax rates are progressive. Right. So normal ordinary income taxes are designed to be progressive, where if you have a small income, your tax rate will be low. And if you have a higher income, your taxes, your tax rate will be higher. Now, this is sensible because, again, if you have a higher amount of income, even if you're taxed at a higher rate, you'll still have more money to support yourself. So those income rates go from 10% if you're earning a little, but if you're married and you have a joint income in your household of over 612, 620,000-ish, your marginal tax rate will be 37% on each additional dollar. But with these type of sin taxes, it turns out, first of all, poor individuals are more likely to spend more money on these types of items gambling, alcohol, cigarettes. 
And given that they have low incomes, by definition, that means they're spending a larger percentage of their income on these items. For mm. example, if you spend a thousand bucks a year and you only make 20,000, if you spend that thousand on cigarettes, that's a pretty hefty percentage of your income versus if you make 200,000 a year and you spend that same thousand on cigarettes. I see. I see. So the dollar amount consumption might be the same, but the percentage of household income and there is greater and therefore the taxes as a percentage of household income are also greater as a percentage. Right. It's kind of like a double whammy. You're not only spending more, but also you may not understand the actual health benefits because there's educational correlations with poor people as well. Okay. That sounds good. So what is, so we have the, the sales tax, the consumption. I do have one last consumption-based tax that is regressive and has incentives that I want to discuss at the end, but we'll come back to that. What are some of the types of taxes that you think when you, about when you think of the overall tax system and how it's designed? Well, the, the main tax that people think about is their income tax, that ordinary income tax rate that we just mentioned that tops off at 37%. Now, a few things I want to mention about that. When people hear 37%, they, that's kind of scary. That's very high. But that is something known as the marginal tax rate, meaning every dollar above a certain cutoff is taxed at that rate, whereas below that cutoff, it's taxed at the previous cutoff rate, which is 35%. And if it's below, you know, 300,000, it's taxed at 24%. Now, without throwing too many numbers out there, just showing the big picture of how this works is, let's say you're making 400,000 a year in your family. Well, you would be at that 35% marginal tax bracket, but your actual effective tax rate, meaning what percent will you pay on that actual 400,000? Because remember, the first batch of that 400,000 is taxed at zero, the next batch is taxed at, taxed at 12% and then 22% and so on. So if you take the weighted average of all that, you actually are not paying anywhere close to 35% on all of that 400,000, you're actually paying close to 25%. Okay, so you said that's the effective tax rate? Yeah, the effective tax rate on 400,000 is only 25%. Okay, so I think that's one thing I look at when I see tax returns is most CPAs, when they prepare it, will calculate both that marginal tax rate, just how much will be taxed on each additional dollar. They'll also show you your effective tax rate, just your tax bill based on that blended weighting of different tax brackets divided by your income gives you that effective tax rate. And again, just by definition, the way the math works, the effective tax rate always has to be lower than the marginal tax rate. Right. And that effective tax rate at the federal level, I'm also including something known as FICA, which is just taxes on Medicare and Social Security. Okay. Oh, I so, see. Okay. But not state. Yeah, but not state. I'm assuming you live in a tax-friendly state. But of course, if you don't, then you'll be paying a higher tax. Okay. Okay. So we have consumption taxes, ordinary income taxes. We talked about capital gains and dividends in the past. Is that what you meant by the, the business taxes? That is. Uh, before I jump to that, I just wanted to make one distinction. So we mentioned that 400,000 individual 
was paying a 25% effective tax rate, even though their marginal tax rate was around 32%. Well, I just want to look at somebody who's making 150000 in a joint household. That person's effective tax rate isn't that much lower. Their marginal tax rate is 22%, and their effective tax rate is close to 20%. So the difference between somebody making 150,000 versus 400,000 is only about 5% extra in taxes. Now people think it, there's a huge difference because somebody's making more than twice as much, but the actual effective tax rate isn't that much higher for somebody making quite a good salary of 400,000 for a household. Okay. So once we start looking at effective tax rates, the difference is not as large as the marginal. So you think it might be a like an optics issue or a perception issue? I think it is because there's a lot of fear that marginal tax rates, they, they sound scary, 35, 37%. But again, that's on each a dollar above a certain high cutoff. So most mm. of the money is not being taxed at that high rate. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost in the noise a bit. Okay. And so I think we'll come back to that because I, I do think that there are political issues of like, how do we decide on what is the appropriate tax rate, either at the margin, so each individual tax bracket, or kind of could we come to a consensus on a effective tax rate that makes sense? We'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah. Once we set the groundwork, I think that's certainly something we should dig into. But as you just mentioned, then there's a whole different set of taxes if you're gaining income, not through a job, but through investments. Now, we touched upon these before. The high-level way you get in income from investments is if it's through like a savings account or bonds you're getting interest and on interest, you're paying something like ordinary capital gains rates. And if you're getting income through dividends or capital gains, well, you're not paying ordinary income taxes if you've held them for a certain period of time, a longer period of time, you're actually paying a lower long-term rate, which is 15 or 20%. What I'd like to also highlight is those rates are lower than those marginal tax rates that I mentioned earlier. Okay. Or and those, those are also kind of follow the same bucketing strategy that you pay 15% on a certain amount of gains until your income gets high enough and then you pay 20%. Yeah. So actually you pay 0% if your income in a joint or married household is less than around 75000 so you can earn about $70,000 in capital gains and pay zero in taxes. Okay. But the capital gains you're realizing are part of that. So you can't make a salary of $60,000 and then get another 70000 of tax-free capital gains. You would only have roughly $10,000 of capital gains at 0% because they're combining the two. Yeah, that's right. So let's say person A is just earning a salary, 70000 In that case, that person's effective tax rate is around 
And if somebody is just earning capital gains, somehow they've earned 70,000 in capital gains with no other income, then their effective tax rate is 0%. Okay, so that, that's a really good example because that's a really stark difference. I had never kind of thought about that. If you could structure all of your income as long-term capital gains, that gets, that feels like it gets really, really low compared to- Oh yeah, income. So, so there are ways to basically get a pretty sizable income. We mentioned 70,000 is about enough to kind of be happy enough so that you're kind of fulfilling all of your needs. And you can do that at an effective tax rate of close to 0% if you have the right type of strategy in place. And this type of strategy, as I'll kind of dig into as this episode evolves, but it's a strategy that's more sensible if you're wealthy. I see. So we apply that 3% withdrawal rate on $70,000. It's about $2.3 million. So if you had $2.3 million in mostly stocks, you could generate $70,000 per year and possibly pay no taxes. Right. Now, again, uh, part of what I'm trying to say at a high level is there seems like there's a different set of tax strategies that are used by normal income earners versus the wealthy. And what, what we just highlighted is a tax strategy that's sensible for the wealthy where their effective tax rate is much lower than what somebody who earns an income might be able to achieve. Okay, that, that that's a a great example. Uh, I it's one of those things where yes, I knew all the rules and I've helped clients do some of those on a on a kind of strategic basis. So most of my clients that are working until they want to retire, there might be a few years where and we've we've talked about this in the past those late sixties where their their salary is gone, but they haven't started Social Security, haven't started. RMDs from retirement accounts. And that's where we try to do strategic tax planning, whether it's Roth conversions or the 0% capital gains is another one. I guess I had not really put much time into thinking of what if someone's in their 40s or 50s and they're designing their lifestyle around that. Right. And that's a large part of the strategies that I not only try to put in place for myself, but for individuals like myself who are interested in coming up with a strategy of retiring sooner rather than later. It's the ability to have income coming in, but keeping your tax burden low. And as I'll dig into just a little bit later in this conversation, that can make a pretty tremendous impact on how you can grow your wealth. Okay. So I can also start to see, we've talked about the kind of individual earned income taxes, the capital gains and dividends based for businesses some of the consumer taxes. So, and I can all, that's a great example of how that could contribute to growing income inequality. Um, what, what are your thoughts on kind of the next level of detail? What, what are some of the issues that arise as this? Do you happen to know how long capital gains tax has been around? 
Well, they've been around for some time. They haven't always been this low. So that, that's something to realize. They used to be closer to what ordinary income tax rates used to be. And it's part of this, I guess, recent trend over the last half of our generation where we as a society have kind of voted for the notion that income from investment should be taxed lower. And that's kind of what we've seen play out. Now, I guess the case I kind of would like to make is we've also seen income inequality increase over this same time period. And I feel like there's not only a correlation between these two notions, but I feel like certainly some causal flow of one causing the other between these two as well. Mm. So I'm, I'm trying to look up some of the history of long-term capital gains. It looks like there have been periods where it's been as high as 40%. And that was in the, kind of, like you said, middle part of the last century. Uh, it's probably in the late 70s or so. So there, yeah, there have been times where they, they were much higher, but the idea that oh, since the 70s, long-term capital gains rates have just have been coming down overall does kind of coincide to a large growth in income inequality over the same, same time frame. Yeah. So I, I don't want to dig into too much on the income inequality numbers because I think we, we covered a good amount of that in our episode on universal basic income. But the high level notion there is just over the last generation or two, the average income earner in this country has not seen their incomes go up that much. But the average income earner who is in the top 10% or in the top 5% or in the top 1% has seen their incomes grow up exponentially. So they're earning a lot more now than they used to. And I think this has a, a, a good amount to do with the fact that, as I had mentioned in that episode, if you're wealthy, your income and your wealth can grow at a large percentage rate, basically at the rate that mark, the market grows at meaning the market typically on average returns around 7%. So if you have a million dollars, you can typically expect to grow 7% a year compounded on that if you don't end up spending that money. And if you're wealthy, you don't necessarily need to spend all that money because you have plenty of other money to live off of. Mm -hmm. And that's the concern. And now if we add in the fact that you're paying a lower tax rate on that growth, so it's higher growth at a lower rate. Well, then you just see an even further acceleration of growth for the richer you are. So what do you see kind of considering recent in air quotes that you can't see recent history and where we are now kind of what does it look like moving forward? Well, it's tough to say because I have some, but wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Things to throw in there. Go so ahead. There's even this notion of tax deferred capital gains. So the, the crazy part about capital gains is you don't have to pay those taxes until you actually sell. So mm. those taxes can grow deferred until decades 
so here's a hypothetical. Let's say you won the genetic lottery and you happen to be born into a household where you get a million dollars from an inheritance, maybe from a life insurance policy or something. You, ha you take that million dollars. Now, thing one, let's say, you know, your parents had invested that money and grown to that money to a million dollars by like buying IBM or Microsoft. Well, we've already mentioned that if your parents had sold that money and they had 900,000 of profit, they would owe, you know, quite a large amount in capital gains on that money. But if they pass that money to you as an inheritance and you sell that million dollars, you owe zero. That's from the step up in basis. Right. So that, that's thing one. All of a sudden you have a million dollars tax free and nobody's paid any taxes on any of those gains since that initial money was invested potentially. Now, let's say you take that million dollars and you grow it for the next 45 years. You don't really need it because you have income coming from other places. Now, the, the interesting part is if dividends aren't being paid on that investment, there are some investments that don't pay dividends. Basically, all of that growth, all of those gains, if you're earning the market rate, you know, 7.2% a year, your money's doubling every 10 years, aren't being taxed until the very end when you decide to sell. So potentially, that million dollars over 45 years can grow to... 22 million, 23 million dollars. And then you pay a pretty large tax bill at that time and you're down to a paltry 19.5 million. <laughs> now, that's just a million dollars that you didn't quite need, but all of a sudden you have close to 20 million dollars tax free or tax paid. Now, if you take that same amount of money that million dollars and you do pay taxes every year on the gains, which you're not really, you don't have to, but somehow you just decide to after that same 45 year time period of, you know, 20, now you're 65 and you decide to retire instead of being worth 19.5 million, it'd only be worth around 15 million. So that extra 35% is just from the fact that you got to defer your taxes until you are 65. So that'd be like holding a stock for 11 months, selling it, buying a different stock that had the same rate of return, but you have paid the taxes on your capital gain along the way. Yeah, or basically just buying the S&P and selling it at 11 months and 29 days every year. Okay. For whatever reason. And then, then buying it back in again. Yeah. But basically what I'm trying to say is- That is pretty just... powerful in terms of the tax deferral, like just- 25% and it's I like those numbers and it that also supports why we recommend retirement accounts to all of our clients that IRAs and Roth IRAs provide that same tax deferral benefit but the idea that the wealthy can do that outside of retirement accounts which have all these income restrictions and contribution limits etc that they can do that just by holding stocks is pretty powerful. You can understand how this may lead to a situation where if you have a million bucks and you don't need to spend it, you can generate a good amount of wealth so that you have enough money that you would ever need by the time you retire.
And we've seen this scenario where we keep wondering, you know, why the rich get richer and richer. Well, it's not so hard if you just follow these numbers. Hmm. I don't know if I should feel depressed or upset or opportunistic of like, I'm going to make sure my clients are doing this too. <laughs> well, I, I certainly recommend it, the strategy for anybody I know. <laughs> and, you know, I'm trying to announce it as loud and clear as I can, but it is what it is. But it's also something that I don't know if everybody understands. This is why we're in the situation we're in. At least that's how I see it. It's the notion that we're seeing this runaway effect. We're kind of watching it. And then we're not sure how to exactly proceed. But in my mind, it's, it's kind of clear that the odds are stacked against income earners and towards the wealthy in this scenario when it comes to the ability to generate wealth if you already have a million bucks, for example. So do you have any... I don't want to say plans, but hopes of solutions or ideas. Cause we talked about like just that political consensus. Cause it seems that there's both the fact that we live in a Republic with representatives and those t individuals tend to be wealthier than their constituents, but also just are the constituents not aware of this? Do they not necessarily care about it or is it that kind of classic american dream i'm going to be rich someday and i want the tax law to favor me when i'm rich i think there's a large part of that i think there's also a lot of talking points that we hear that the marginal tax rate is too high or, or the fact that if we don't provide a low tax rate for investment then it'll slow down the economy or the notion that if we try to come up with a fair system, then the rich will find a workaround anyway, so why bother? There's a lot of, I guess, reasons why somebody might not support a more equal distribution of income. But I guess at the end of the day, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, are we comfortable with this runaway effect? Is this what we like? Is this what we're trying to aiming for? Because that's what we have. And if our society as a whole is in favor of this type of scenario, then there's not much to complain about. So one, I guess, counter argument that I'm curious to get your take on. I am not that opposed to the reduction of corporate taxes when it happened. And because I do try to consider the, the idea that we live in a global society and, and in a certain way, the U.S. is trying to be competitive with other countries for hosting these companies and collecting the tax revenue from these companies. And also these corporations are double tax, meaning that they pay taxes at the corporate level, and then all of the profits that are sent to the owners being shareholders, whether it's via dividends or an increasing stock price, are also taxed. 
that initially I would have, I was I'm okay with those lower capital gains and dividend tax rates in part because the corporate profits were already taxed. I might be open to something like getting rid of that large tax deferral, whether it be eliminating a step up in basis or not making long-term capital gains preferential or having to pay taxes on gains along the way. So something, something like that. But I'm curious what your thoughts are on the idea of corporate revenue is double taxed at the corporate level and the individual level. And we are trying to compete with other tax jurisdictions. Right. So I get the notion that we have to remain competitively internationally. That makes sense. And I get the notion that there is a double tax. However, there's a few things to consider with respect to corporate taxes. One is the notion that when a corporation is having some sort of income, that comes after all of the expenses are paid. So if you think about a corporation, the way it works is they get revenue, they get some money, then they have all of these expenses so that they can grow their business and also cover their overhead for the things that they've actually sold. And then they pay their dividends out. Mm. At, but the notion there is, if you're a smart company, what you can actually do is instead of having that double tax, you can take whatever leftover money you have and use that to accelerate your growth even more by reinvesting it into your company. You can keep doing that such that you never show any income. So you never have not only your dividend or that second tax of you know, that person who received the dividend, so basically, you can avoid that double taxation completely by just plowing that money back into your corporation to accelerate further growth. And you can keep doing that so that your corporation gets larger and larger and larger. And if you keep doing that, basically what happens at that point is your stock valuation goes up and you're eventually going to have to pay a tax, right? Because eventually somebody's going to have to sell that stock or not right? You can keep deferring taxes for generations. Why not? This brings up one of the strategies I've seen for the super, super wealthy founders, the Bezos and the Zuckerbergs. They can actually borrow against their stock position. They use that that single large stock position as collateral and they borrow to fund their lifestyle basically for the rest of their life. And then their heirs, once the original owners pass away, they sell the stock for 0% capital gains and pay off that large loan. Yeah. So there are, so it, it does kind of add to that strategy of, yeah, it's possible that the corporation doesn't pay any any taxes because they keep reinvesting into the business and then the business grows. So the stock price grows and then the individual doesn't pay capital gains taxes because of the step up basis. Right. You may have heard this about, since you mentioned Amazon, this was part of their earlier growth strategy. The notion that 
if you have your prices so low such that you're not even making a profit, you're making just enough to get by, but you're taking all that extra money and accelerating into your growth, you can just keep growing larger and more quicklier than the competition. And your shareholders might be mad that they're not getting a <laughs> dividend, but they don't care because the stock price is going up because the company is growing larger because the revenues are growing. So yeah. you can see how this cycle can be perpetuated almost indefinitely so that Jeff is the richest man on the planet. <laughs> so it's quite possible to do this. You know, this was a strategy I'd mentioned with Warren Buffett and Berkshire, where the notion there is you own a lot of these companies and instead of ever paying a dividend, you just keep taking money from one company and putting it into another company that needs growth more and so on. And you keep letting that stock price grow and grow. And if you never sell that stock and if the stock never pays a dividend, the government never collects a penny. So do you think there are potential solutions at the corporate accounting level? Like on the stockholder level, I think the step-in basis is definitely one thing. It, it's worth exploring what does it look like if that went away. I don't know if, we, if you have any information on other countries that don't have that and how, how that affects things. But I am curious if there's something to be done at the corporate accounting level. Well, the, the tricky part at the corporate accounting level is we have a system where if you don't show a profit, then the government won't collect a tax. So <laughs> it's kind of easy to sidestep if you just never show a profit. Uh, another way to think about that is instead of declaring a dividend, you do a buyback. Right? We've talked about that slightly, but basically mm -hmm. that increases the future stock price. But again, if you never sell that stock, you don't pay any taxes. So it's tricky at the corporate level because there are many things that a corporation can do that an individual cannot. For example, we mentioned some concerns. There were some articles coming out over the years how these large corporations were taking all of their expenses and saying, oh yeah, those expenses happened in the US. But then taking their revenue and saying, nope, that revenue was in another country over there, which has a lower tax rate. So all of a sudden in the US, it looks like, oh boy, all I have is expenses and no revenue. So you can see how things like this can make it even harder to deal with. That's interesting. Like, even if, even if you were, to, so, because my thought process was kind of like at the household level, you can't just deduct every expense. You can't, you can't deduct rent, you can't deduct buying food, can't deduct the clothing, you can't deduct so many things are just part of the normal life. But at the business level, you can deduct almost everything that's normal business expenses. Oh yeah. You're flying around on that corporate jet because you're, you own a business, well that's expense. But normal traveler wants to go from A to Z and that's after you pay all those taxes. Yeah. You're paying both the taxes on your income that you use to buy the ticket. And then the airline itself has so many additional taxes and fees. Right. So we have this situation where equity from corporations can grow at, as we said, 7%, whereas 
average GDP is far lower and CPI is far lower and wages are, you know, around that as well, around 2%. Well, you can kind of see why, given how all of these structures are set up. And again, I don't know if I know a solution that people would like, but I'm not sure people really understand how lopsided things can get if you kind of know all the rules. And believe me, the corporations and the wealthy do. Yeah, yeah. One last thing I wanted to get your opinion on kind of going back to our original consumption taxes and how it tries to influence incentives is when it comes to taxes on gasoline and this is definitely a regressive tax if most people on average drive about the same depending on where you live where your job is but most people have similar driving habits, it's not a safe assumption, but for our conversation, let's go with that. Then they pay the same amount in gasoline taxes, but because higher incomes and higher, uh, households have higher income, that percentage of um, money spent on gasoline and gasoline taxes is, a, is lower than for poorer households. A gasoline tax is fairly regressive. It's also not a syntax because this is not a behavior choice. This is kind of the only way to get around sometimes. But there are decent studies that gasoline taxes do impact gasoline usage, and this actually does help the environment. And so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the complexity of, of how this interplays of the gasoline tax is regressive and it does correlate with the higher the tax, the lower the driving. It does help the environment to have these higher, higher gasoline taxes. Are you okay with that? Is that just a personal opinion on environmental policy? Is, is there some other way to do this a little more effectively that could not be regressive? The way I think about that type of tax is similar to how I think about even the, the syntaxes we mentioned earlier. I think the syntaxes could be sensible under certain scenarios, meaning if the revenue collected for those taxes actually went to help curb those uses, meaning providing education, providing mm -hmm. benefits that end up attacking the problem that those taxes are trying to solve, then I, I feel like it's sensible. And I feel the same way about the gasoline tax. Or even since we're in the same bucket, the notion of a carbon tax. The notion of a carbon tax is that gasoline puts out carbon, carbon messes up things, therefore you might tax that carbon to disincentivize messing up things and use that money to not mess up things. The way I see it with gasoline tax or carbon taxes, if the money is put towards uses of actually helping to solve the issue that that particular tax is meant to solve, then, then it makes more sense to me. For example, with gasoline and carbon and, and climate change and things like that, gas does put out a bunch of pollutants into the air, and those pollutants do affect people, and they do affect health 
and we can quantify that. In fact, with a carbon tax, what the way that would be determined is the market can come up with a price for how much that level of gas will cause in terms of pain to the environment, and then the tax can offset that cost. So I, I feel like there's benefits of that. And by not taxing the amount of pollution, it's basically basically allowing that pollution to go into society without having a consequence, which in itself is another type of moral hazard. So you're not necessarily, so this one, the cost to society kind of outweigh the fact that it's likely regressive. I think so. And and again, that's kind of true in terms of the syntax. I'm okay with them being regressive if the money is put towards uses that actually help curve. For example, with gasoline taxes and a carbon tax, that actually might accelerate our shift towards more sustainable sources of energy. And we've already come a long way with sustainable energy solutions. I think the price of solar is approaching natural gas, if not slightly lower. And having less subsidies on gasoline and other polluting types of energy will only help accelerate that change. So I I think it's definitely aligning incentives on where they should be. And it will likely have a positive benefit overall to even individuals who rely on gasoline and who it's regressive for, because by driving down prices of alternatives or making alternatives more competitive will, in the long run, I I think, even make the price of energy lower. It's something we mentioned in one of our earlier episodes. Okay. So as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on other ideas that, not necessarily that might be implemented, but at least are worth testing, if possible? Well, I I think so. I I had a few, but wait, there's bars, but (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to make this too dark and we we can certainly save them for another conversation. But as far as solutions, we we mentioned a few in terms of, you know, how about we as a society look into these things. The first premise I want to base this all on is, do we think that we should have a society where the rich just get richer and income inequality increases over time? If we think we want that type of society, then we should leave things how they are. But if we're not comfortable with that, or if we think that somehow that's not sensible, then I think a few solutions that we might consider is, again, we did talk about the UBI, and there were plenty of points in that episode on why something like a universal basic income might make sense. So I'll leave listeners to check that one out for more on that. But there's also this notion of taxing wealth. That's come up here and there. I don't know if it's too soon to even consider implementing it, but it might be something to consider because as I've mentioned, you can grow wealth now on a tax deferred basis and pay almost zero on tax, especially now that the state tax at the federal level exemption amount is 23 million. If you're married, a lot of money can flow through generation to generation without being taxed, allowing, again, this acceleration of income inequality to continue. And the notion that you can continue to increase your income year after year without paying anything in tax is something that we have to kind of scratch our heads about. 
And it all comes down to the notion of, you know, why, why are we taxing income and not wealth to begin with? You know, maybe that's a, a first question we as a society need to ask ourselves. Yeah, the the apples to apples should be that the income from kind of work maybe at the very least could be taxed as the same rates as income from wealth. Kind of trying to separate how we use the money for lifestyle versus just it sitting there. Because kind of I, at the very basic idea if you had a million dollars sitting in a bank account earning zero percent and it just sat there and you never used it it maybe doesn't make sense to tax that but again maybe maybe it does maybe that that's the the conversation is could could we because i know some places have either consumption or spending taxes depending on kind of how much you spend on your lifestyle or, but yeah, I don't know. I still don't know how fair can podcast air quotes that that would be. It's one of these situations where it's hard to say that anything would be fair for everybody, but it's kind of also hard to say that the current system is fair for almost everybody. That's a good point. Right, let, let's move somewhere in the right direction and figure out ideal later. Yeah, it, I, I think that that's probably how I might put it as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the great education today, Trishel. I, I really do appreciate it. Well, thanks, Aaron. I enjoyed the conversation as well. It's certainly a topic that is probably bubbling under many of our minds in terms of what do we do with this whole situation of income inequality and and it's probably important to have a, a good conversation of what kind of goes into the effects that we're seeing so thanks Aaron I enjoyed it very much well I hope hope that this is helpful everyone as well and I look forward to talking to you next week Okay. Thanks, Aaron. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, do spread the word. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested in directly. Have a nice day.